Today is the day to wake, work, and win. Welcome to The Standard. Corey, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So I'm just going to get right to it. Let's go back to August 20th, 2018. And you get a call, your department gets a call for a 911 hang up in a fairly affluent area. And uh, you take the call and, you know, take us through your day, take us through, you know, the timeline of events. So it was a it was a summer evening in, in 2018, and it was a Monday night. It was uh, my last graveyard shift for the year. So I woke up, and we picked up the kids and had dinner and had a normal family evening, and we did homework, and the kids go to bed about 7.30. To me, it was a normal evening. I walked out, and I was parked out in front of the house, and my neighbor Steve across the street was taking some trash out, and I, I said, well... I said, I'm going to go to work and make sure that uh, the city's safe while you sleep. <laughs> and uh, he's like, all right, pal, because we always joke like that. And I went to work and I got ready as usual. Um, I had been, one thing that I'll, I'll talk about that helped me that evening is my physical health at the time was very well, where prior in my career, my health has been poor. I'll be very honest about that. But that night, it was warm. I did not ride my bike to work, which I had been doing for the summer. Went to work, got ready. Uh, we had a call right before 9 o'clock, an alarm call, which is common in the city of Cherry Hills. And it was a home under construction. We walked through it, checked it out, and everything was all right. And then we went back to the office, and we had our briefing we do every evening at 9 p.m., where our swing shift and night shift will meet. We talk about events during the day and events coming up and problem issues in the city. And we had a newer officer in there who had a DUI the night before, and we talked about his pros and his cons and what went well and what I would like to see different, what others would like to see different. And it was a nice, relaxed evening, having a good laugh, you know, as I think any duty room or roll call room will, is used to. And then at about 10.30, 10.40, everybody started breaking away through the evening and go out and do patrol or do any assignments they had. I walked out to my personal car. I had my patrol vehicle loaded, and they aired a, a 911 hang-up to my partner, Brent. said it was a 911 hang-up, and there was nothing in the background. And the address they had given uh, kind of rang a bell from a family disturbance before. So I said I'd cover and be en route. As I get there, I observe that it's not the home I'm thinking of where we had had a family disturbance. And dispatch tells me that they could hear someone say, go back to your room. Uh, as I'm pulling up, so thinking, yeah, we have probably a teenager or something. Something's not right in there. They're telling their child to go back to their room, and uh, they're probably not listening to their parents, and that's why I'm being called. I park tactically. I'm the only one there, and I walk up, and I don't hear anything. And They teach us to use our flashlight in our non-dominant hand, so I have the flashlight in my left hand. I shoot with my right, and I'm walking up, and everything's all right. There's no cars in the street. There's nothing to uh, raise my awareness. And um, I see the front door was open, so that, that rang a bell. But as I walk up there, I can hear some bickering 
beyond that door somewhere going on in the house. It wasn't yelling or anything, but there was something going on in there. And obviously the front door's open. They call 911. They're expecting me. So I walk in, announce myself. I let them know who I am. Take about two or three steps in. I hold my flashlight away from my body. So if anyone is to identify me and want to shoot me, you know, they're going to shoot away from me towards my light. And at that time, I, the first time I turn my light on, it hits a male. That light hits him in the face, and he has a mask on. You automatically know right then and there that, that this person does not belong here. You know, why are they in a home with a mask? So I yell for them to get on the ground, and I see an orange bang. And it was an orange flash. So I don't remember drawing my weapon or, or anything like that. Next thing I know, I was shooting I was laying on the ground, and I had pain in my leg. Looked down at my leg, and there was a big hole in my pants down just above my knee. As far as I know, my knee had been blown up. But as I looked down, there's a large wound. It was spasming. There was some blood, but at that time, I'm on the ground. I could not find my firearm. I didn't have a backup gun with me that night uh, that I carried on me. So I had to make the decision, you know, what am I going to do? And I said, well, I need to get out of here. So that's what I did, and, you know, I start having some personal thoughts. You know, I, I asked God right then and there, I said, uh, is this it? Clear as day, he responded. He said, no, you're going to be fine. I got this rush through my body. You know, obviously God had, had just given me word that, first of all, I heard his voice for the first time ever, and uh, second of all, he said everything's going to be okay. So I had a little bit of relief there, but there was some screaming and crying, I think, um, as I went into shock, personal thought I had is right down the street from where we were. It's a very large church. I work there once in a while on Sundays, uh, extra duty. I, I know a lot of people there, have personal friends there. And we have, as you guys know, a lot of law enforcement and firefighter funerals there just because it's large size. I had asked myself, I said, well, am I, is that where I'm going? Am I going to go right down the street? You know, is that it? You know, God told you you're going to be all right. So I crawled out. I don't have any more contacts with the person who shoots me. And as I'm on my way out the door, I can obviously tell there are now victims coming out. They don't know who I am right away. Obviously, they can tell after a second or two that I'm in uniform and, and they can see a badge and maybe my duty belt. And they obviously know I've been shot, but they're somewhat shocked that, uh, you know, they, they're no help to me, which is... I couldn't imagine being awoken in the middle of the night by a home intruder. So I, I continue to crawl out. My training starts kicking in. You know, I start telling myself, well, you know, you, you've played victim here enough. You've screamed and you cried. I said, you need to start communicating to dispatch what's going on. So I got myself out of the house. I had a little bit of concealment to where if someone ran out the front door, maybe they wouldn't see me. I, I don't know. But I got on the uh, radio. I let them know that there had been a, a shots fired. Uh, my second transmission was that I had been hit. And that was that on the radio. Um, so I knew the cavalry was coming. And I knew I'd be going to the hospital. You know, I start checking myself uh, from the neck down by my vest and my belt. And I'm good there. I said, well, I have a leg injury. And as I'm pushing myself out, I'd been hit in my left leg, to give you a visual as I start crawling out, I start pushing with my right foot, and there, there was nothing there. So there's no strength. So everything was uh, through my arms. I crawl out, like I said, and got some concealment. And 
knew dispatch had uh, knowledge of what was going on, let them know I did not have a weapon anymore, and I knew the cavalry was coming, like I said, we're going to have rescue coming, and they're going to get me out of there, and there's about, a, I don't know, maybe 30, 40 seconds of that gap of my partner arriving, so I knew that my wife was going to be very upset <laughs> with the situation, so I take my phone out, I can hear sirens coming, I called my sister, and I told her, I said, hey, I'm okay. And, you know, reason me calling her, I've gone to the hospital at work before. You know, I've been uh, rear-ended by a DUI driver, and they transport you for safety or precaution. And she's picked me up before. So I tell her, hey, I'm okay. I'm going to Swedish uh, right down the street, great level one trauma center. And uh, I said, I need you to come down. She said, okay. I said, don't tell Ann, my wife. I'd like to go back just for a second because you are laying on the ground, shot, you don't know where the intruder is, you don't have your gun, and you have the wherewithal to pick up your phone and dial a number. I find that incredible. When you go back to the radio traffic, Mm -hmm. is that something that for us, it's, we're going to call a mayday the same, regardless of kind of where you are in the country. They all seem to, to kind of sound the same. How long did it take? And I know it's tough to say, but from you getting shot to being able to use your radio, uh, and also, do you have to change channels or anything like that? Like, What happened to those fine motor skills? Like I said, I, I crawled out. I had to use all my upper body strength. And once I knew I was in somewhat of a safe place, I had tried keying up as I crawled out. Dispatch saw I could see on the other side that I was keying up. I guess one thing that helped me is the Zachary Paris shooting in Douglas County. It was, uh, what, 2017. I remember watching one of the officers' body cams. One of their officers had been hit in the chest area or the arm, and I remember seeing him just laying on his back and taking a deep breath and relaxing. So that, believe it or not, that went through my mind. I said, oh, I'm just going to lay back here and, and take a deep breath and relax. And that's when it clicked. I need to let dispatch know what's going on. I've gone through all my own personal thoughts and feelings. But now as a police officer, I need to do what I'm trained to do, and that's communicate. And to me, in my mind, this was three or four minutes of non-communication when I think about it. But looking at the timeline and the investigation and radio traffic, it was only about 35 to 40 seconds of me crawling out and uh, not communicating with dispatch. So I guess it's not horrible lag time but I wished I would have done it sooner. Dispatch could see that I was trying to key up and nothing was coming through. So um, my dispatcher, Annerly, which you got to have a good communication with your, or a good relationship with your dispatchers. I know it's harder at larger departments, but especially those smaller ones. You got to take care of them because they're the one watching out for you. You said you tried keying up a couple of times and it didn't work. Was there something wrong with your lapel mic or do you wear a lapel mic or do you just pull out your, the physical radio out and talk on it. So no, I had a lapel mic on. It was dragging a little bit. And I think as I was dragging it, the microphone was clicking and obviously she could hear that clicking and knew something wasn't right. But listening back on the tapes, uh, this all did happen very quickly. She asked for my status and that's when I said I had been shot. I said 616, that's my badge number or my call sign. She asked my status. I said 616, shots fired. 
obviously they'll go emergency on the air right away. Um, so they, she sent out a tone, let everyone know that, that there had been shots fired, and then I communicated, well, I've been hit. So obviously um, they're going to start rescue right away, get them staged in the area. So from there on, my partner runs right up and goes, hey, partner. <laughs> he just uh, moved to the city from the country. He's like, hey, partner, where have you been shot? He goes, you going to be all right? And I said, yeah, I think I'm going to be all right. When we look back, a month earlier, we had tourniquet training. And he goes, where's your tourniquet? And I said, I don't have mine tonight. And he goes, well, I don't have mine either. Um, <laughs> and, I, and, you know, I said, well, I don't think we're going to be able to get it on anyway. You know, there's a lot of damage and a lot of trauma to that leg. So I guess that's one thing that, you know, I beat myself up on is I have a picture of myself from the night before with my tourniquet on. So I don't know why that tourniquet wasn't on. Obviously, now we wear them religiously. But, you know, you got to carry the equipment that you train with. You know, even if it's new, you got to make that habit start right away instead of telling yourself, well, I'll carry it tomorrow or, or in the next day, you know. We talked before we came on today, and one of the things we talked about is going to the range and training these monotonous tasks over and over again similar to us in the fire department our basic skills we just do the same thing over and over again and months and years might go by and you never use it and then oh everybody thinks about it like am i ever going to do this you know i got this you know i don't really need to do much of this i've been doing this over and over and over again and of course you got that night you talked about drawing your gun the same way you draw at the range over and over and over again and you did it that night so now what is the training mean to you like before this happened the training felt monotonous now what is all the training you do to prepare for stuff like this feel like well i think there's a lot of things that happened that evening that helped me you know that this was 2018 let's, let's take it back to 2014 you know i was a, a new father i had a two-year-old and another one on the way i lost my mother and uh i was pretty deep in alcoholism drinking was uh it was fun you know, it was a social thing, but with it came very poor lifestyle. You know, I was uh, very overweight. I was about 280 pounds. You know, I wasn't the father I wanted to be. I wasn't uh, the officer that I used to be. And I wasn't the, the family figure I needed to be. So eventually, you know, alcohol finally caused me to become diabetic. And I had to make a decision, you know, am I going to... <laughs> shoot insulin and be diabetic and drink? Or am I going to be a father figure and a, a good officer and keep my house and keep my wife and, and keep my life? In 2016, I made the decision to quit drinking. And more or less, what helped me was breaking that cycle of drinking. I'd become diabetic and not known it and ended up in the hospital just for feeling like shit. Me going in the hospital is what broke that cycle. I don't know what it is for others, um, what makes them quit their bad habits, but to whoever's out there, there's something that's going to have to break that cycle, and I don't know what that is, um, but in my case, it was becoming diabetic and, and being loaded with medications. That's not what I wanted to do with my life. Did you use a program to stop drinking, or uh, there was definitely the starting point of going into the hospital, but how did you go about maintaining that instead of, hey, this is it, or did you go just cold turkey? Right away, it was cold turkey. You know, it, 
being sent home with medications and the embarrassment alone was was enough, but I knew something was coming. You know, you get to that point where there's a breaking point, you know, you're like, this can't continue. And I think I got very lucky that I had my breaking point of a hospitalization, not having all the finances in place because you're drinking and not having uh, the relationship with your wife and not having that relationship with your kids and not being the officer that you want to be. You start seeing it take a toll. It's something that I, I wanted. I wanted to quit. I really did. I just didn't know how. So eventually I had a great doctor. I talked to her about it and she was very supportive and it got in with a great counselor and just started sharing a lot of my feelings of why I was drinking and, and what was going wrong in life and what was I, what I needed to correct. So you got to start having a strong mental health game. You quit drinking. A few years later, you go through arguably one of the worst traumas someone can go through. I've talked about on the podcast before that the few times that I've had some issues in the fire service, I'd go do what I is in my blood, which is go and start drinking. Because that's the easy thing, right? Uh, it's kind of what you know is going to make you feel better right now. Was it a temptation after you've gone through your recovery? You know, maybe you can speak to a few weeks, months, years after the shooting, kind of how you dealt with that and, and was going back to the bottle something that was tempting? No, drinking hasn't, uh, it hasn't been something that's been very tempting since my shooting. You know, obviously they send you home with a lot of pain meds, you know, the opiates. And I got shot in August. I was on opiates pretty strong through April, you know, so that April through October when I'm really in pain and going through that, I mean, it was strong. And obviously I know that I have a, a false mental attitude because, you know, I'm on these pills and it's blocking a lot of pain and it's obviously blocking a lot of, uh, feelings. But one thing I was blessed with in the hospital was I had a psychiatrist stop by the, the in-house uh, psychiatrist. His name is Dr. Kevin Riley. And uh, when I was in uh, acute rehab, trying to get stronger to get out of the hospital, he came by and he sat down and he just kind of sat there and introduced himself and didn't say much. And he told me uh, who he was and, and what he did. And he expected me to have some PTSD from my shooting and if I ever felt like reaching out to him to do that. And I said, well, I'm not going to reach out to you. I said, let's just do it now, you know? And he said, well, we'll get into that. <laughs> so I knew that in the past, uh, talking to someone definitely helped. And I knew that I wanted to be on top of this too. People are telling me, oh, you're going to have PTSD. And, you know, that's something I didn't want to have. So while I was in the hospital, not only were my physical injuries addressed, but my mental health was addressed as well, and we've been on top of that ever since. I'm going to ask a more global question, which goes back to maybe the beginning of your career when you started in 05. I'm sure you've been asked this before, but did you ever think you would have been shot? Yeah, it's, I was never going to be in a shooting in my career, and if I was, I was going to have that four to five second period of time to really figure out what I was going to do to prep myself, but... You know, we go to the range and we train and we uh, we go through scenarios. And, you know, I went 13 years, you know, there's no shooting. I'd never been close to a shooting. You know, I've worked perimeters and stuff on officer-involved shootings, but I've never been super close to a gun going off while on duty. 
other than us having to put down an animal or something. It's just it's something that's never happened in my career. And we trained, like I said. So that night, I saw that first shot come at me. My mind never thought about drawing a weapon. It never thought about shooting that weapon. What happened that night was our repetitious training that we'd started with in the academy. Drawing your weapon and shooting those fundamentals. I knew that night that danger had been presented to me and it was uh, shooting at me and, and that's my skills came back into place. So without thinking about it, I uh, drew my weapon and fired back uh, as a suspect was fi firing at me, but there was no thought put into that. It was all just muscle memory. Can you talk about Cherry Hills as a department and, and as a district and maybe where you came from before that? The city of Cherry Hills Village was uh, founded back in the 40s and borders Denver on the south, and it was created for the affluent to get away from the air traffic. Um, so it's the most affluent town in the state of Colorado. You know, there are billionaires in there, and there's very large homes. And our number one call for service is traffic. We have a couple large uh, throwaways that go through our city, followed by alarm calls. That's our number two call for service. And then a lot of thefts. So we have very large homes. We have very beautiful trails. Those trails obviously bring people in from the outside. They'll park their cars uh, in our city. So we have thefts with those. So it's just, it's a very nice place to be. It's a good way to get away from reality of the real world. Um, the city has only four businesses that are in a little corner. So, you know, it's very rare that you see a homeless person. You know, they do pass through. But you just see very um, affluent people there. We're not treated any differently or anything. It's just a different part of town. When I hear your story, it's we got an automatic alarm. It's just starting my shift. I'm coming in fresh. I think of the firefighters who are in a similar situation where they work in a one-two station department you know, don't see that much fire and they don't think that they're ever going to be caught in that situation. And maybe they're going to automatic alarms with not all their PPE on because this is the thousandth one they've been on and it's never been a problem in the past. And then this happens and how likely it is to be caught doing the thing that you never thought you, maybe you never thought you'd be in a structure fire because you aren't working in this small town that we never have fires in. But what I gather from your story is like, it absolutely can happen to you. And if you don't train, maybe if you didn't draw your gun and start shooting, you wouldn't be here. Has that ever kind of crossed your mind? And has the thought process of the other officers at, at Cherry Hills changed since your shooting? I don't think it's just our department. It's it's every department across the country, whether you're a department of 4,000 or a department of two. There's days that you think you're not going to get into anything. It's going to be an easy, laid-back day, and, you know, we're just going to get through it, and we'll go home, and everything will be good. But one thing we got to remember, there's a reason why there's a police department. There's a reason why there's a fire department, and it's because you're going to respond to those bad incidents. I've come across guys that work in rural areas that don't wear their vest, and uh, I come across guys here in the city that uh, are taking an easy day and don't have their vest. I don't think the vibe's really changed a whole lot. Uh, I mean, they're glad I just went back to work here a few weeks ago. I think they're happy to have me back, but one thing that we have talked about 
is we thought we'd have more of an aggressive police department, especially right after uh, in the weeks following the incident. And there wasn't that. So that was kind of a shock. You know, you think there'd be more more people stopping and asking questions on people walking through or something like that, but that wasn't happening. So you're 16 months later, you know, August 2018, shooting happens. You spend some time in the hospital, multiple surgeries, sometimes for the same thing, you know, because something doesn't hold, a rod in the leg doesn't hold, a plate isn't strong enough, so you go through the exact same surgery, reset your recovery time, frustrating by any means. Was that the most frustrating part of this whole process, you know, the aftermath? Or were there other things on a personal level that, like, what was the most frustrating part for you following this? I don't know if things would be frustrating. The hardest part was receiving help from others. You know, there was a GoFundMe set up right away uh, to help us out, which I'll say if it wasn't for that, we'd we'd be in a financial wreck. It's definitely come in handy. Um, there's a lot of unexpected expenses just family wise that you need to take care of while someone's out of work. And in this case, my wife was out of work and I was out of work. The hardest part was uh, accepting help from others that a lot of people want to help random people in the community. And it's not because they feel bad for you. It's because they want to do something. And it's, it's how the community heals. You know, I wasn't the only victim here. You know, obviously we had a home that was invaded. We had people sleeping in the middle of the night and, you know, they're victims, but also the community is a victim when this happens. It really shakes them up. So part of them getting over it and and starting their healing process is helping you out, whether it's baking you goods or, or donating to the GoFundMe. You know, I received lots of handmade blankets and to me, I felt like I was a burden you know, this person obviously went to the store, bought goods to put something together on their time, put it in a box, went to the post office, shipped it to me. And to me, I just, I really felt like I was a burden doing that. But the more and more I talked with the counselor and stuff, you know, it's, it's how the community's healing. That's how they're getting through this as well. An event like this, I can only imagine the level of stress it puts on a marriage I know a little bit of it because you're obviously married to my sister. Talk about what it's done to your marriage. I'm sure it's been a roller coaster at times. You got young kids at home. You can't do much. You want to do a lot. You got to juggle careers, raising kids, and then your relationship with your wife at the same time. Well, I'm very lucky. My wife's a nurse, so she's already a very caring and nurturing person. But I think one thing I will go back to me laying on the ground and calling my sister. I knew that I was going to be going right down the street to Level 1 Trauma Center. You know, going back, I don't know what, about 18 years now, my wife Ann and Tom's brother was killed in a car accident and was taken to Swedish. And I don't know why uh, that came into my mind that night, but I did not want my wife coming to Swedish into an ICU where she had seen her brother pass away. What's ironic about that is it was almost exactly 18 years later. So I can remember walking into the same meeting room, you know, that we sat in. My brother, or our brother, passed away on August 22nd. You get to the hospital on August 21st. So you want to talk about some interesting thoughts going through your head and a time in your life, a time in our family's life where it defined the family 
it changed the family forever. And here we are again that night in the same hospital, much of the same waiting room, dealing with the same type of kind of threat to human life. Yeah, I can still remember going there that morning and talking to Anne. You know, she's still in shock. We had that conversation that night of, wow, it's been a while since we've been here. Here we are again. And luckily it turned out different. You know, that was the good part. But so it's very, very surreal night going there and driving there, being in the same place almost exactly 18 years later. Yeah. So I didn't want my wife to have to go through another dramatic experience like that. I remember her coming in to the room, the ICU room. You know, I'm pretty drugged up and my life's okay. And, you know, I know that one day I'll be somewhat normal. As I'm waiting for Ann, I'm talking to my ICU nurse and she goes, where do you live? And I tell her, and I said, I live in Parker. And she goes, oh, I live in Parker too. And she goes, you have kids? I said, yeah, I got kids. I said, I have one that just started kindergarten. She goes, oh, my daughter started too. I said, well, who's her teacher? And she goes, Miss Berna. I said, no way. I said, that's my kid's teacher too. So Ann comes walking into the ICU room and, and she's got tears and she just kind of whispers, oh my God. And I said, Ann, I said, meet our nurse. Her daughter's Mercedes in Miss Berna's class. <laughs> and she just gave me the ugliest look. She was not happy. She didn't think that was cool. She just, she was looking at me like, oh my God, you know, what are we going to do? And you know, I'm telling her the recovery time, seven to nine months, which, as we know, was more almost twice that. I was really just trying to downplay everything when she came in. You know, everything's going to be all right. On the other side, she's an ICU nurse. She knows all that can go wrong. She knows the long road ahead, and, and she's seen that. So as I'm trying to make sure that everything's cool, you know, she's seen the big picture. So it definitely in the hospital it put some strain on us you know she's doing her own little things to just try to survive and get through the the hour or the day one hour in the hospital ended up turning into 24 days so yeah it just it put strain on it and you know I was so helpless in the hospital you know I could not get my kids ready to go to school I couldn't pick them up I couldn't take my child to their afternoon activities I wasn't going to be making dinner you know, I'm not going to be there for, for anything. I'm helpless I'm, when it comes to my family. And the wife called, well, the air conditioner's out. Well, what do you mean the air You know, I can't do that. I can't help you with that right now. And um, that's where, you know, really sucking it up and your pride and, and letting others help you came in. But when it came to the marriage, we had some family friends who were very good friends with an officer who had been shot and had a great marriage counselor. So, you know, I knew things were off right away with Ann and I, and I think she knew right away. And we had that counselor come into the hospital and, and help us out and talk to us and keep us guided, you know, in the right direction. As time went on, the biggest issue with Ann and I has been communication. And that's coming from all the doctor's appointments. There's been multiple, multiple arrests made in this case. So there's court going on all the time. And trying to keep those dates straight and communicating those to the wife and letting her know ahead of time instead of the night before. So communication's been key. But one thing I have to remember is she's a victim in this too. You know, she has just as much post-traumatic stress on this deal, if not more, than I do. 
you know, she's getting woken up in the middle of the night. There's a stranger in her home, you know, that's going to be giving her a ride to the hospital. And I see her receiving the news just as traumatic as me getting shot. Everyone at the table has come to terms with the fact that we might go to work one day and not come home. That's our choice. We force our spouses to make that choice as well. Not to mention the fact that you work in a place where you never thought you would get in a gunfight. I would assume that your wife would absolutely think that you worked in a place that you'd never get caught in a gunfight. How was it putting the uniform back on? Did she ever ask you to go do something else? Because, you know, there is no safe place. There is no Pleasantville where you can go to work knowing for 100% fact that you're going to come home tomorrow. You know, I have a morning ritual and I'd make sure that I kiss my wife on the forehead because I, I know that that might be it. It might sound to some people like, oh, you're overreacting. You're making your job seem so dramatic because we don't see that much fire, right? We don't get in these situations like, you know, some of us signed up to get into some of these types of calls and it just doesn't happen. But to think that you're not going to be in that spot one day or there's a chance you're not going to be caught in that spot one day is irresponsible. Did she have a hard time with you being at work again? So Anne's been my number one cheerleader. I mean, like I said, since day one, you know, she did walk into the the ICU and, and had a lot of questions like, how are we going to get through this? And I think it was more or less her just asking herself. She knew that we could, and that we would uh, have some support. It's just the anxiety of the unknown. What's ahead for us? Uh, but she's been our, my number one cheerleader. And, you know, sometimes when the recovery was was not easy or I wasn't making the gains I wanted to, and you have all this time on your hands, uh, medical retirement has popped in my mind. I can't tell you how many times. You know, I, I'm not going to be able to go back to work. And when I would mention that to her, it was never an option to retire so she's always told me, you're going back to work and, you know, you'll be fine and, you know, we'll make some adjustments in your therapy or uh, your workouts, but, you know, we'll get through it. But as time moved on, um, you know, I start going back to work light duty for four hours. She was okay with that. And then as time moved on, I'd work in the office eight hours, but then it came time to put the uniform on. There was, there was a little anxiety there. Daddy's going back to work for 10 hours a day and... He'll be in a uniform and he'll be in a police car, but it's something that we talked through and we had enough time coming up. Uh, I think that's helped. The first time I had to put my uniform on was was in July. Uh, was right after a surgery. We had an award ceremony. I was given an award and I had to put the uniform on and it, it felt great. It felt like all the other days. Me getting dressed here about a month ago for the first time to go back to work. It felt like all the hundreds of other times or thousands of times that I've done it before. It was good. So, and I think having the, the backing of my wife definitely helped with that. Tom, how did it feel to get that phone call that Corey was in the hospital that had been shot? You've been in the fire service for a long time. I know you've seen people get hurt on the job. You know, you as an officer might have to make that phone call one day. Have you thought about any of that stuff? Going back to getting the phone call that night, you know, I remember at the beginning of this podcast, Corey, you started talking about your day or your night leading up to going to work. And you remember every little detail. You remember the conversation you had with your neighbor, you know, giving him a hard time. You remember putting your kids down, every, every little movement that night. 
I remember that night because I was at work and it was about 2 a.m. Ann called me. So I was, I was sleeping. The phone goes off. You know, my sister's not calling me at 2 a.m. I immediately was like, oh, it's, it's, it's my parents. And then she got on the phone and she was actually pretty calm. She said, hey, it's Corey. He's been shot. And she said, he's at Swedish. I think the first thought that entered my head was like, Cherry Hills of all places? You got to be fucking kidding me. You know, because we we had talked, Corey, like we had talked when you moved from El Paso to Cherry Hills. We're like, yeah, this is if you're going to be a police officer, I don't want to be a police officer. That's why I'm a fireman. You know, that it's not I couldn't do what you guys do. But if I was going to be a police officer with my background as a firefighter, I'd be a police officer in Cherry Hills. (laughs) That's where I'd be a police officer. It'd be great. I go back to, like we said, 18 years earlier when I got the phone call from State Patrol at just past midnight. And I can remember every little detail of that night still. I can remember getting the phone call. I can remember going into my parents' bedroom, waking up my mom. I can remember her getting out of bed and kind of going, what? What's going on? I can remember going downstairs, telling my dad, what? What's going on? You know? And I can remember the car ride because I drove my parents to Swedish in complete silence, right? Nobody was talking. Everybody was thinking. I know what I was thinking. And as a parent now... I know what my mom was thinking, what my dad was thinking. I know what they were thinking when they were walking up to ICU. I know what they were thinking when we turned the corner and saw my brother on the hospital bed. So I remember every little thing from 2 a.m. at work. The bunk room I was in, answering the phone, you know, do you need me? No, okay, okay, I'll come when I get off. Getting that call was a lot like 18 years ago. And so a lot of things go through your head. Yeah, ultimately, I think what really helped... My sister is is working in a hospital. She works at Children's, and she deals with a lot of trauma. She's in a stressful environment. And as you mentioned earlier, Corey, she works in the ICU, so she knows the things that can go wrong, but she also knows you know, what condition you're truly in. So she's not left to guess, right? Walking in an ICU room, she doesn't have to go, I have no idea what's going on here. I don't really know if he's good or not. She can talk to the nurses and she can see things and she can look up at the vitals and she can see how you're doing and she knows the meds you're on. And I think that ultimately helped her. I think it was a good moment for her and I as brother sister to be there. I've been on the shootings and I've been on the cores, those calls. And so we could both relate to that. And it was a good, I think it was a good place for us to be together that we weren't in that place 18 years ago. So I think we were able to deal with a lot better knowing that our careers now, I'm, I'm a firefighter, paramedic, and she is a ICU nurse. That helped that night. But I don't like those calls, I can tell you that. I don't like the middle of night calls. I dread those. I dread those as a parent because now it's happened twice. Once for my brother, once for you, Corey. I'd be fine if I never get one of those calls again. Have you had conversations with your wife about you going to work in a job where you might not be coming home. Has that changed anything? It doesn't matter how small or big your department is. It can happen anywhere. And we read and see stories across the nation now of firefighters arriving on scene of what turns out to be a guy who set his house on fire. And the minute they get there, he starts picking them off like a sniper. They're out to get anybody in public safety. So that thought enters my mind every day. We definitely aren't pulling up to a scene on a fire thinking that somebody's going to shoot us. Almost any scene that you pull up to as a police officer, it's in the back of your mind. It's what you train for. So I approach it 
differently. I always have since I started having kids. But I think ever since Corey got shot in a place like Cherry Hills, it's just put me on even a greater alert. I need to do everything in my power to prepare and try not to be surprised by anything. Try to show up on scene and be on my A game so I give myself the best chance to you know, look out for my guys, avert any major disaster that somebody's trying to plan to, to hurt us all. And I've even had those thoughts in my head like, okay, what am I going to do if one of our officers is down? That way I think about it before it happens and I know what I'm going to do if I'm the one responding to an active shooter and one of our officers down. And that brings up a really good point. The rescue team that showed up that night, it was South Metro Fire Station 37 would be the rescue crew and the fire was Station 38. So obviously when I when I let everyone know that there had been shots fired, there there's guys coming from the city of Denver, the city of Sheridan, Arapahoe County, uh, Little Town, Columbine Valley, Douglas County. I mean, they're coming from everywhere. As we know, when all the cops show up like that, it clogs everything down. So there was a, a couple officers that had carried me out. But, you know, they're tired. But uh, what I remember looking up at is is the rescue crew from 37 and 38. They had full tactical gear on. I was like, why is this firefighter got all this tactical gear on? But it was very clear that they had practiced this before. They knew how to move in their gear. They got in and they got me out. And they were quick. You know, I see these guys in the gym working out before work. And, you know, they're just, they're beast. I'm very happy that that's what they do. Because uh, the time their rig pulled up on scene to the time they pulled up to Swedish was five and a half minutes. And you don't do anything that fast if you're not well rehearsed. So... Obviously, rescue and fire, their daily routines went flawless. You have gone through some pretty traumatic events, not only with your shooting, but what you had to deal with when you were deconditioned, drinking too much. How would you have dealt with this shooting when you were deconditioned and using alcohol as your coping mechanism? I would definitely say that that my shooting incident has, has been a breeze compared to my personal struggles earlier in 2014 I had lost my mom like I said and had a a young child and another one on the way and I had no coping skills but once I I did quit drinking I learned that there are coping skills that being through you know whether it's a counselor or a psychiatrist but the shooting it made it very easy because I had so much support I had support from doctors who were trying to heal me, physical therapist. I had a marriage counselor coming in the hospital right away who wanted to be there and help me, uh, a psychiatrist that was just giving outpouring support and, and telling them that we were going to get through this. I had support of the community and the support of my work, support of my family. But if you take it back to 2014 and, and when you're drinking and you don't have coping skills, you feel like you're in that battle by yourself. Your family's upset with you because you're dealing with a substance and you're not performing at work like you had been before. You know, you're showing up late, you're catching a little reprimand here or there, and you think that the world's against you. Two totally different events with two totally different sides of outpourings of support. Um, I think we're learning as we go on that it is okay to reach out for support Uh, But with the alcohol, I think you're afraid to. 
you know, you don't want to be judged. You don't want people to think you don't have things together. Um, so reaching out for help is, is really hard. But I think what you need to know is you are, when you're dealing with it, you're not the only one going through it. Um, you're not the last one who's going to go through it and you're not the first one to go through it. Yeah. I would say that the, the mechanisms of support are, are way different. I see the people who are dealing with the substance portion of that. You're begging for help, but you're screaming and no one can hear you. As opposed to when something like this happens when with your shooting, everybody knows you need help. But you are suffering in silence when you're having a substance problem. And that is when we need to come together as, a, as this family that we all claim to be a part of. And don't expect that person to reach out because... That is inconceivable when you're in the middle of it. You need to see the person who's in trouble and you need to go to them and be like, listen, I know there's something going on. I'm here to help you. The, hey, if you need anything, let me know. It's never going to happen. You need to say, listen, this is a problem. Here's how I want to help you with it. Or, or if you don't have the skills to do that, approach that person with someone who does. Because if, if you're expecting them to come and ask for help, it is just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I had coworkers, you know, I, I come in, hey, buddy, are you all right? Yeah, I'm fine. And then, you know, you go hide for the shift and, and deal with the minimal that you had to. You got to suck up your pride and you got to let it out. Once you let it out and things start getting better, I mean, it, the relief is, is awesome. So one thing that helped me get through my shooting is I've been sober a little over two years. I'd lost about 55 pounds. I was cycling. I was working out. I was active with my kids. You know, I didn't make it a huge priority. It was more of a lifestyle change. So I believe, you know, if, if I would, had still been drinking and I had all that weight on me, my recovery process, I don't think I'd be where I am today. And I might not have made it out of the house either. Yeah, this is one of the episodes I've been wanting to do for a while, but it's one of those topics, especially hitting close to home. And I don't think six months ago or even a year ago, it would have happened just because of the process of you're going through and how hard it is on the family and yourself mentally. But I'm glad you were able to finally come on. And I, I think that your courage to come on here and tell the story and open up your, so to speak, professional and personal life story it's going to impact a lot of people. And I, I think it's going to help a lot of people, you know, get through some things that they might be going through. So by doing this today, I think you made a huge impact on helping a lot of other people. Just through my experience, I think everyone is going to go through a severe low point depression in their life. And just knowing that you are going to get through those, you know, I know depression can really lock your mind but if you can just squeeze through and ask for some kind of assistance uh, a counselor is a good way to, to dump that information and get it off your chest and actually provide positive feedback on how to address those issues.